Good morning, everyone. My name is Gary, and we're meeting today with Dr. Ken Holtman. He's an, a pioneer and an expert researcher in the field of organizational development and, and values when it comes to personal values and, and organizational values. So with that, I just want to share a little bit that currently he's a licensed clinical counselor, has various degrees, authored nine books, hundreds of articles, and and so he's going to be a great expert for us to talk to today as we move forward in our discussion and our search for the simple and easy processes that we can do to help leaders move forward in an ever-changing world. So with that, welcome, Dr. Holtman. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Gary? I'm doing well. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us today. So I'm going to kick it off. I want to start at the beginning, if you don't mind, sir. And when I say the beginning, I'm not going to talk about like your childhood or anything like that. Uh, I just, I'm curious, when, when you received your doctorate from Rutgers University in counseling psychology, I know that that's not a very typical degree that kids go to school and grow up saying, I want to be a counseling psychologist when I grow up. I, I know for me personally, when I was in school, all they ever talked about were doctors, lawyers, and policemen and firemen and ambulance drivers on occasion. And, and so that was, we had five things we really chose from when we were going through our process. What is it that inspired young Ken to become Dr. Ken? Well, when I was when I was an undergraduate, I majored in sociology, and that gave me kind of a uh, a wide overview of social sciences. So I took a lot of courses in anthropology and uh, psychology, and as you know, those tend to be interrelated, and uh, all of them are useful when it comes to understanding people within uh, a larger context. For example, in relationships in teams and in organizations. So while I was uh, uh, focusing on working with individuals, I saw the necessity to uh, to view the individual within context. That, uh, in a sense, we're always in some kind of relationship. We're in a relationship with ourselves, with close others, uh, people that we interact with and know personally. Then we're uh, we're involved with more distant others as members of organizations, groups, and so on, political parties, uh, churches, and so on. And then we also have a spiritual part, which kind of transcends the temporal sphere that we are in and thinks about, uh, we think about things that are beyond this, like what is this experience about what, what is going to be occurring, uh, what's going to happen to me afterwards. I was very curious about the person within uh, all of these different contexts, and mm -hmm. uh, that's what that's what drew that's what drew me to to counseling psychology. When I was at Rutgers, I began uh, organization development was very new back then. That was in 1969. It was a OD as we call it. It became prominent in the uh, in the 50s and 60s. 
and primarily through the tea group method where people got together and they, they began to know each other personally within a team or an organizational context. So you knew the, the whole person with the idea that this would help establish a healthier work environment and improve performance and morale. For example, when I took um, group counseling, we used uh, at Rutgers, they were using T-group methods. And I, I, I became introduced to OD through, through that, through, through group, group counseling. And that expanded my um, desire to not just look at the individual, but also to look at the person within these other contexts, the social, the collective, and the spiritual. That's intriguing to me on, that, on how those experiences and the classes all work together to, to formulate the direction that, that you go. And so thanks for sharing that with us. Bro. component to that, which is that, that uh, you know, when you're in school, and you're, you're given assignments and you're graded, and there's a kind of a linear approach to education, and mm. that did not suit me. And, uh, <laughs> and when I when I was young, I used to think, well, I just didn't get it. I wasn't smart enough. When I was in college and and, uh, and especially in graduate school, I came to to realize that I was a, a synthesizer, that I was a more holistic thinker, and that my the way that that I think didn't lend itself to step by step kind of thinking, but more standing back and looking at things more holistically. And this foot this uh, this fit very well with uh, the field that I was in. I learned that well, I do I do have some strengths. I just didn't realize them through the way that I was being graded in the courses I was taking. I can remember walking into my first uh, psychology class in graduate school and thinking, these are my people. (laughs) (laughs) I finally found my place because before that I was kind of wandering and and struggling. And I think a lot of students uh, feel this way that if they can't master that uh, linear approach, Mm -hmm. that there's there's something wrong with them, that they're not smart enough and, and they put limits on themselves. And and really, it's it, it it has more to do with the way that they think, and and finding a, an avenue uh, uh, to express that thinking in their their uh, coursework and then in the, the their vocation, whatever it is that they decide to do as a career. I think a lot of people can relate to that, not just me, just because the linear model it works for a portion of our brains, but when it comes to to putting it all together, we have to see the whole picture and getting bite-sized chunks along the way can really inhibit that big picture view. I found that this was especially important in courses uh, in work I did in career career counseling, Mm -hmm. uh, talking to students who were discouraged because they were struggling in their courses. The way that they were being taught didn't allow them to see the, uh, the strengths that they had. It focused they were focusing more on their weaknesses, which was tied to the system. But when they could stand back and they could look at themselves in a uh, from a larger perspective, they could see strengths that they were not measured. They were not utilizing in their courses. This was very freeing and also important in terms of their future direction and carving out a path, path for themselves for the future. 
I was intrigued by Dr. Holtman's ability to link students struggling with education to their ability to think and align. Interestingly, this is a spoiler alert for a future episode. This topic took center stage when I met with and discussed this topic with Dr. Temple Grandin. For this discussion today, I honed in on his point as it pertained to standing back and identifying strengths. Even though he was not a trained coach per se, he discovered similar truths as Dr. Wider did in my interview with her in the episode about strength-based leadership. Based on his conversation, I could not help but wonder how the values he held dear guided his work as an expert on leadership. With over 40 years in clinical counseling, therapy work, coaching, a lot of consulting, and a lot of, you've written a lot of books and a lot of art, a lot more articles, and just playing and helping people overcome their personal and professional problems. What values did high school Ken Holtman have that pushed him to get into values research as Dr. Ken Holtman? I would say that the, that the, the primary thing was that I always was intrigued by the question of well, why am I here? What, what is my purpose in life? Uh, what, what is this experience of living all about? That question kind of followed me, has throughout my life. And so in one way or another, it's, re it's reflected in, in my books. My, my, uh, I've tried to uh, spend time focusing on, on each aspect of the human's experience from their, their relationship with themselves, their relationships with, with close others, their relationships within organizations and teams, and then their, their spiritual relationship and how, how they view themselves from an, in a more eternal perspective. That theme of who am I, why am I here, what is my purpose, has remained with me as I have uh, endeavored to study each one of these aspects of the human experience. I have children and my children at very young ages asked, they ask very similar questions. And, and so I know that that's not a, a kin specific question that came up in his mind that all of us at some point go to that question and, and want to know, is my purpose here just to make money and work for quote unquote the man? Or is my purpose here something bigger and something greater? I find that very fascinating that that led you into values research. So how does the research that you did into values, how does that play into answering those questions? Well, my, my view is that uh, each of us has three major questions that follow us throughout life, and they're very dynamic and they change over time. They are, who am I? What is important to me? And what is my purpose or why am I here? You can't, you can't answer those questions without thinking about values. Values is kind of an overarching concept that encompasses those, those three questions. It may look at them from a different perspective, but the, uh, those three tend to be interrelated. So if someone is stuck on one question, like who am I and their, their sense of self, is ill-defined or they're struggling with that, it's going to carry over to the other two questions. What is important to me and what, and what is my purpose? For example, if someone has a low, a low opinion of themselves or what they can do, it's going to influence their choices in terms of what's important and also will 
likely to limit what they see as their purpose or what they can accomplish with their uh, their talents and abilities, which will are, are often minimized by their own inner thinking about themselves and what they can do. So I got two two questions that came out of that. Very interesting. You talked about minimization of their actions based off their values. And you also mentioned something about the values being originated from. So, so I'm curious to lead into our greater discussion here. If the values are those underlying ideals or principles, uh, the overarching umbrella, if you will, when it comes to our guiding motives and, and things we do, where did where do they come from? Or more specifically, where did your values come from? Where do all of our values come from? My view on that is that that, that values are a reflection of the, the fact that we have free agency or free will in contrast to animals. Animals act on instinct to a large degree. We really don't know how some animals think. And some people, <laughs> some people view that they have, may have more choice than we give them credit for. And uh, in, some, in some instances, they make smarter decisions than people do. And <laughs> That's so true. I don't, want, I, I don't want to. I don't want to make any blanket statement about the uh, the uh, thinking capacity of animals. But when we tend, fair to, enough. <laughs> when we think, when we tend to think about animal behavior, we, we think more about instinct or automatic responses uh, having to do with survival and uh, procreation and the behaviors that animals can engage in humans have free agency they have they have free will we make our own choices we're in a society and there's pressure there may be pressure to 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 choose according to other people's expectations but even going along with um, what somebody else wants us to do and their expectations that that's still a, a choice that we make from that view of free agency <clears throat> values tend to form um, from two different avenues. One is through socialization and early childhood experiences, primarily from authority figures, our parents, teachers, uh, ministers, and other uh, other adults who influence us, other, other family members, have a, a major impact on us as a child in terms of our thinking about what is important and we're uh, rewarded or punished as a child, depending upon how our actions align with the expectations of these authority figures. As we age, we tend to, um, they call it individualization. We begin departing from that, asking ourselves, well, here's what my father thinks. What do I think? And so in social psychology, they talk about this, that the social self, who we are in relation to close others develops first and the personal self, my relationship with, with my, myself emerges from that and over time. And some people differentiate themselves from close others more fully than others do. Some stay pretty compliant in a conformist mode in relation to close others, trying to please others. While others, it, it, and if you're going to individuate and become a, your own person, it requires courage to do that because because the individual often gets pushback or disapproval from the from adults who want them to think and behave the way 
they think is right. I would say the values primarily emerge from those two processes, the process of socialization and the process of individual the individualization that uh, forms our personal self. What do I think? What do I believe? What is important to me? I start to understand a little bit more, actually, why as a teenager, we begin that rebellious phase where we want to, back when I was a kid, we'd cut our hair weird and put mohawks in it, or kids would come home with earrings when their dads told them no. And and so it does. It, I'm I recognize that, that it takes a lot of courage to do that and stand up for the personal values that you're developing as you move forward and age through life. And mm-hmm. They tend to, to guide that when we become an adult. We have to learn that balance uh, when we're dealing with other adults as to when we have a, a boss or a supervisor and their values, what they want for us to do. And we have to balance our personal values with what they want us to do and not rebel too much when it comes to that. You know, there can be a delicate balance between the need to, for example, when you're working for an organization, to uh, abide by the the norms and the, the principles, priorities, embrace the priorities that the, are being held by the organization in the sense that they're paying you for this. So in that context, you you may not be able to be your uh, total self. You have to surrender some of that to uh, because you're being paid by the organization to to produce something that's uh, has to do with their agenda. And then and then when you're home, you behave differently. There's a different set of expectations. But even within that, those expectations may put limits on what you may want to do. Personally, I found for myself that it's important for me to have a personal space apart from what others expect, whether it's in a a family environment or a work environment. And that refreshes me and and allows me to bring something that's of mine to other relationships, whether it's close relationships or more distant relationships in organizations. And a lot of leadership training, they talk about giving people a chance to exercise some personal personal space, personal time. Uh, for a time, there was a big push for the work-life balance. And, and so you could use that time to find that balance of getting that personal space outside of the office and not be wholly devoted to the work that you're being paid to do. The other thing, the other thing about that, Gary, is that uh, when you think about creativity, for example, if you have too many constraints in an organization, it may inhibit a person from bringing the full creativity that they have to offer to an organization. Mm-hmm. So organizations that allow for more um, individual expression and there were people where there's a climate and uh, sort of a synergism among people that uh, invites them to be more expressive of who they are, there's a greater chance that that person will be able to bring more imagination and creativity to to their work, especially in organizations that want innovation. They want they want trendsetters. They want people who, who think outside of the box who, who can lead them to uh, new directions for the future. If the workplace is too inhibited as far as tolerating individual differences, 
they're losing out on the opportunity to benefit from the creative potential of the individuals. That naturally gives my curiosity to this. If I am a leader in an organization and I have a lot of some people that work for me, the organization has its values of what it wants. And one of the main, one of the ones you mentioned was innovation. And they usually the organizations put those in their mission statements and their, their value statements. Uh, we strive for this, 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 and this. And, and then as a leader, my job is to try to maximize those values from the people that work for me. How do I, let's, we'll run with the one that you mentioned, the innovation, because that one really sparked my interest and the question on there is how do I, as a leader, balance that with an organization that says they want innovation, but their practices are such that they inhibit that innovation? That would be a process of the, the leader perhaps wanting to move in a certain direction but also also helping to establish a climate that reinforces that because um, at least in my experience, individuals and organizations are reluctant to to step out, speak their own ideas freely until they until they feel that it's uh, safe to do that, that they're not going to be criticized or, you know, put down, be rated because of that or or get in trouble with their their supervisors. This has to do more with the overall climate that the leader is able to establish. The climate within an organization is led and directed by uh, the leader, and he or she will then need to go through some processes to bring the managers and the other uh, leaders in the organizations on board with this so that they are uh, they're in alignment with that with with not only the the mission and the vision but also the practices that practices they will use with uh, employees to to create the synergism in teams and with them as individuals to get so the employee can, will get back past those fears and uh, actually be able to express themselves, feel feel comfortable and feel safe in expressing their ideas without fear of being criticized or uh, getting in trouble with their supervisor or this kind of thing. Anything that would be an inhibiting factor for them in being able to say what's on their mind. So creating a climate of openness would be part of that, and that would okay. that would that would come from leadership, and then leaders would prepare others. They would hire to that, and then train and train their uh, or the people in their organization to create that kind of climate. Uh, at least in my experience, that's not a natural thing that happens, but it's something that has to be deliberately planned and and put into place and be built into their management system and just the the way that the organization functions. And I will say this, that it, individuals who feel that they have more to offer than the organization is prepared to receive, they tend to, their morale tends to be lower, they become discouraged and frustrated, and that's one of the major reasons for turnover in organizations. They want to be somewhere where they have more freedom to be who they are and offer what they have to bring. 
that's a good point that you bring up. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of quiet quitting. We've seen a lot of people leaving organizations and moving to different ones and even starting their own. And most of the the feedback on the news and then the anecdotal evidence of people's conversations, they tend to bring that up as one of the main reasons that drove them to leave was that the organization didn't allow them that opportunity to exercise that freedom and innovation. That's a good point. Um, Mike, what I've viewed over the last, uh, say, 10 to 20 years is because the the original concepts behind OD had to do with creating a healthier work environment, uh, more interact, encouraging more interaction, and cohesiveness, collaboration. And as the as the years have gone by, the emphasis has been more on uh, revenue, uh, prop, profits, uh, competition, and leaders are evaluated in terms of the money that that they bring in this tends to lead in many instances to a climate where employees feel a sense of urgency to produce and they're they're afraid of not producing and fear is the arch enemy of creativity if people are afraid to not do something that's a whole different orientation than being encouraged to speak you know what do you think about this uh, what ideas do you have? You know, does anyone else have, have something that they want to, to say or contribute to this? And, uh, and and get that kind of synergism going among individuals and in teams that creates this kind of exciting atmosphere of exchange of ideas, which then leads to other possibilities of what, what, of what can happen. That reminded me, actually, of an article that you wrote in 2015 that was titled Organizational Development as Identity Change. And in there, you talked about how the organizations tend to mirror the values of the people that are part of that organization. And as we've moved forward in time to where we are now in this virtual landscape of work and people are leaving because they're fearful of the production element versus the innovation and the values-based element, what can a first-line supervisor uh, to change the organization's stated values and the values that the culture brings down, what can a leader do to identify the shared values that the members of their team have and encourage them to match those values with the organization and build unity around those values? Well, one thing is to build a reward system around uh, a set of values which encourages uh, innovation and creativity so that a, a climate is set. People are encouraged to be this way. They're get, they feel like they have the freedom to, for that to happen. I think that, uh, that this comes from the top, the, the, the CEO, the president, whoever's in charge, it would start there because as you go down the line from managers to supervisors, if there, if there are any disconnects, say, for example, you have an innovative supervisor, but the manager is very controlling that the supervisor reports to, then it's very hard for this kind of uh, climate to, to develop in an organization where the supervisor actually feels reluctant to give employees more freedom to explore new ideas, innovation, to be more creative. 
the entire management system sort of needs to be on the same page with this and and that comes from the, from the top and so the reward system and the promotional system need to be tied to this that uh, there so there will be and also discussions uh, about what the values are and how they're going to show up in actions so that those can be reinforced and all of the managers and the supervisors are using complementary uh, actions to to create and maintain this kind of climate so that the individual employee so that the supervisor doesn't feel like he or she is going out on a, on a limb in order to encourage creativity and that somehow they may get in trouble because their manager is not on the same page with that. Organizations that are really vibrant that I've seen are when everyone top down has the same orientation toward involving each individual, encouraging every every person in the organization to develop and utilize their full potential because that will bring more to what the organization is able to uh, produce. It also creates a climate where individuals want to stay because they see that they can develop and fully express what they have to bring. And uh, well, why would I leave here? I, it's great, you know, the team I'm working with, it's an exciting environment. I look forward to coming in every morning I feel like I can be myself, I can express who I am, and that this this is encouraged. You know, I love it here. You know, that's in contrast to an employee who dreads getting up in the morning and, and doesn't want to go uh, to work either virtually or, or in the office. They're trying to survive the day. But there are many, many people who are who are who can relate to that of that. They're, they're, they just want to get through the day. That very much is an, inhi an inhibitor to innovation and creativity. I wrote down some notes on that when you're talking about the reward system and then sitting down and talking to the people to assess their values and then use that conversation to match it up with the values of the organization. That's a really, that really was, that's a different way of looking at it from what is typically taught in management or leadership courses specifically the the rewards system and that discussion about values doesn't typically come up in too many of those trainings for whatever reason they don't typically come up a lot of leaders a lot of people in organizations don't really know what values are and uh, they stand back and see all right what difference is, is this going to make in terms of day-to-day -day practices when they start seeing uh, what they would consider to be hypocrisy, you know, a difference between the stated values and the actions that are used to implement those values, they then become cynical and they see these really, these, these values don't really mean anything. And so one of the points that I stress quite often is that the values by themselves are just words and they, uh, to be real, they need to be operationally defined. It's like if a person is acting on this value, what will I see? What actions will I see? And those define what the values are, not the words. Everyone who's a stakeholder in the organization needs to be involved in this process so that there will be alignment among individuals, individual workers, and the uh, uh, management, you know, supervisors, managers, all the way up the line to the, uh, the president 
And that kind of leadership comes from the top and uh, flows down into the organization. Once the behaviors they are defined, they then can be built into the uh, hiring system, the training system, the supervisory practices, the uh, performance evaluation process, and uh, be used as promotional criteria. When you get everyone on the same page like that, you 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 don't have people who are politically trying to see you know where where will this work where you know who do I need to watch out for who is a safe person for me to to talk to about this mm -hmm. somebody that I I have to be very cautious when I talk about this kind of stuff there's a greater degree of alignment now this is this is not anything that's set in concrete this is a process of continuous improvement and it has to be worked on constantly to be maintained because there's always change in the external environment. There's change within the organization. People are leaving the organization. New people are being brought in. They need to be brought on board with how, well, this is how it works around here. This is, this is what we do and how we do it. Do you want to be part of this? Would you like, would you like to have to, uh, to have a working experience that is like this? And they can make their decision based on that rather than being hired and then afterwards saying, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. That could save a lot of money on the front end for, for organizations to bring on people and save a lot of time and effort on the applicant side as well uh, to have that conversation up front. It prevents a lot of cynicism. Say, yeah, right, you'll hear this, you know, and you'll hear that. <laughs> But this is the way it really works. And if, <laughs> if there's a discrepancy there, then it, then it's, it's a real problem because that energy is siphoned off into uh, self-protection and uh, a negativity where it could be channeled into the innovation and creativity that's, that could possibly come forth. You mentioned earlier that it requires constant change and people are naturally resistant to change. I know that you wrote a few best-selling books. One of them that comes to mind is Becoming a Person of Destiny and Making Change Irresistible. So how can I help determine that destiny and help make that change irresistible? Well, in, my, in, uh, in the books that you mentioned, what I've, uh, because when people use resistance to change, when they use that term, a lot of times they're thinking about one thing. So their approach to dealing with resistance they'll, they'll have one approach to dealing with it my argument is that the that resistance to change can emerge from a variety of sources and depending upon the source the cause of the resistance you would vary your approach in in dealing with that so that you're not responding to symptoms you're actually getting at the underlying causes of the resistance and you're you're dealing with that now, in a more uh, open and collaborative work environment, people will be will feel more free to express their views about this, so that resistance can be prevented. Uh, once it's established, it's it's hard to break down. It takes a lot of time to undo uh, a thinking process that has been established based on the person's experience in the organization. It's better to start off by having open discussions about about uh, what's going to be happening, changes that are being contemplated, 
so that the individual feels that he or she has input into this, can express their not only the, what they see as positives, but also any reluctance or hesitation that they, they may have, that this, these can be open discussions and not just something that's a decision made by management that flows down to employees, take it or leave it. You know, this is the way <laughs> it is. Especially you know, the young, the, the young generation, they want, they want to have a say in, in uh, their work experience. They want to have more freedom to be who they are, to set the terms of their employment, and uh, to have more involvement in the decision-making process than has been historically true in organizations in the past. We, we're like emergency workers. We see the leaders, are, especially newer leaders, are like emergency workers. They feel like they're putting out fires all day. And, and so if we have a big change that's coming, if they jump ahead of that and find the the outcome or the root of that resistance prior to the implementation, they can work on that before and not have to put out the fire. That's a good point, uh, Gary, because in today's work world, there's four or five generations within the uh, workforce. If you have a large organization and uh, older employees would uh, likely have uh, a different mindset or orientation toward toward the work and how things should happen than young people. So effort will need to be made in order for the older employees and the younger ones to have a greater understanding. All of the people in the organization have to bring to the the mission and the vision of the organization, and this 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 requires a de- deliberate effort. Because that understanding is not going to be automatic. It's something, it's a, it's a learning process that everyone needs to be involved in so that, that uh, all, of, all of these people from different generations find a way to be, to form a more cohesive work environment where they value what each other brings to the goals, the mission and the vision that is trying to be accomplished. I mean, that would have been awesome to know that when I was a brand new leader. And that would have solved a lot of headaches on my end and probably a lot of headaches for the people that, that worked for me at the time. Well, you'll so have, you'll, you'll have more opportunities in the future. <laughs> this Hopefully is, so. We'll keep fingers crossed on that one. This, this, is, this isn't going to go away. <laughs> well, thank you so far. We've covered a lot of, a lot of items so far. Before we start buttoning up our conversation, what three things would you tell a new leader or emerging leader? about how to balance the organizational and personal values for maximum performance? Well, one thing is that when a a person joins an organization, it's not just the working person who shows up. The whole person shows up. So the more that the organization can relate to the whole person, the more commitment, uh, the more enthusiasm, the more cohesiveness that you're going to be able to build that that person will feel, I'm not just a number, I know, I'm not replaceable, I'm someone who's considered valuable and, and important to this organization, not just as a worker, but, but as, as a human being. The second thing is that the, the, the individual brings his or her own value system with them. The organization may have theirs that's generally agreed upon by the man, the management team 
there's a need to fit these two together. What the individual is, br is bringing in terms of his or her values, there's enough of a match between that and what the organization is trying to do, the values that they are reinforcing in order to accomplish their goals so that they, res they, they respect what the, what the person brings, but they also see that this is a unique individual who may or may not agree with all of the ideas, but there's enough overlap for them to work together toward common, common goals, while at the same time respecting that individual and uh, his or her perspectives and views um, as a person. The third, the third thing would be to have a process in motion that will, that would help to continuously bring about a greater sense of cohesiveness and alignment between what the organization is striving for and what the individual wants so that the, the individual is, is content and happy and see, and sees them they see themselves as having a vibrant career in being with this people and uh, and and learning learning from them and they have growth opportunities and they can be who they genuinely are and not have to put on some facade that's not really them in order to survive in the organization and this requires a deliberate effort on the part of leadership to create it will, it will not happen by itself, but it needs to surface as an agenda item that's out there in the open where everybody has input into it so that they can create a, a cohesive, collaborative environment among all levels of the organization. Because, you know, in, in the end, the organizations that are the most effective is where everyone is contributing. There's not internal dynamics and, and, and uh, internal battles where, which are self-defeating because your organization has competition. They can't spend their time fighting among themselves and have in individuals feeling like they don't belong or their views uh, don't matter. So creating this environment needs to be a major priority of leadership and it needs to be an ongoing process that's given priority to be sustained and then find ways to uh, enhance that. And this largely comes from being open and listening to the views of the younger people who are being brought on board. Thanks so much for sharing that with us and giving those three pieces, that's amazing. What did I miss? What's something that I missed or what did I miss that you would like to share with our audience or anyone that's listening? A lot of people don't understand is what is the major role of values? Is it Values, values are a type of belief. You know, there are four different types of beliefs. There are descriptive beliefs that have to do with what's true and false. Evaluative beliefs would have to do with right and wrong. Predictive beliefs, which have to do with what you think is going to happen in the future. Values are beliefs about what's important. As, uh, the, as beliefs of that type, values play an executive role in personality. So they are formative, our uh, thinking process, uh, what we might call the executive functions of decision-making, problem-solving, and priority-setting. And the other beliefs are supportive of this, but it's values that drive choice. 
so having discussions where people are talking about values and the beliefs that underlie those and how those translate into actions, because those three all align and the actions are the manifestations of the values which are underpinned by beliefs. So an open environment where people can talk openly about their beliefs, how they translate into values, and how those values manifest in, in action, that is that is a crucial process because employees will evaluate an organization's values based on what is done, not what is spoken. And there needs to be alignment between the words and the the way that the organization operates, the actions that are used to carry out the, the responsibilities and the priorities of the organization. Thank you. If you take a particular value, say honesty, if we don't talk about what that, how, how that manifests in, in action, your view of it, of how that would show up might be different than mine. You may say, I need to be open about what I think and what I feel. I might say, I got to keep my cards close to my chest because that information could be used by a competitor against me. And so I'm pretty, I, I don't say a, a whole lot you know, unless it's really necessary. So the way that that shows up in our actions is going to be very different, even though we might both say that we have a value for honesty. And the same thing is true of every value. It can be defined differently by you than it would be by me. And uh, there needs to be a common definition so people are on the same page as to what actions that they can um, engage in that will contribute to what others are doing toward the overall goal. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying that for us so we can make sure we keep that, that in mind. That's an awesome responsibility that leaders have to make sure that that on both ends, that clarity is shared and understood between both parties, so there's not that misunderstanding. But research has clearly shown that a values-driven organization will outperform one that isn't over time. Coaches of leaders can help them understand that while you may not see this in, in a week or two weeks, over time, you're going to be creating a, a healthy work environment that's actually going to be more productive and more profitable. Thanks so much for the conversation we've had so far and from where we've started to where we've come today. I just want to I just have two questions for you for the end here. What is the legacy that Dr. Holtman wants to leave behind? Well, um, that values values has been kind of a core uh, theme in everything that, that I've written. I'm currently working on a theory called values-based uh, identity theory. To me, values are the core of how we define who we are. If, if, if I was going to ask you, you know, how would you define yourself? You know, if I was going to know Gary, what would you tell me about yourself? Whatever you say is going to relate back to what's important to you, what you consider to be your purpose. It's going to define who you are. And all of that has to do with values. So I'm trying to make, in my current work, I'm trying to make uh, that uh, connection between values and identity uh, more clear and also show the importance of leaders being able to understand this when working with individuals in the organization because the individual is bringing their identity to the organization and 
you want that to match with what the organization has to bring so they see a, a coherence between what is important to them and what is important to the uh, organization so that their identity as an individual is affirmed by their through their work and they don't feel alienated that somehow I don't fit in here. I don't feel like I belong here. I don't feel like I matter as a person and the other things that are inhibitors of morale and performance in organizations. So that's what, that's, that's uh, something that I'm exploring right now. I see it as an extension of, of the work that I've already done, which of course there's, there's no end to it. You, there's, there's no point where, okay, we understand this fully. <laughs> it's an ongoing learning, learning process. The more I get into it, the more I say, why, why didn't I know this 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> you're still alive and you're still learning. And so I've learned how to see this connection and then, you know, the relevance that it has, not only for an individual's personal life, but also for their work life. That's true. It's a good, and the relevancy doesn't go away. It's not like other aspects of some leadership theories or methodologies that can and do often change over time. This is stuff that doesn't go away. It's it's indefinite and eternal. It goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning that you were looking for the answers to the questions that yeah, I think brought the, us to that eternal understanding. I, I think the, the, probably the most discouraging thing for someone is to feel like they don't matter, that they're showing up, I'm being paid, but I don't really matter. You know, I'm expendable. Uh, my supervisor told me if I don't like the job, there's 20 people outside that would want to come in and take my place. So they feel like who they are really doesn't uh, make that much difference to them, which creates a very demoralizing um, kind of environment and uh, very difficult for the individual. It's a, it sort of takes away that spark, that motivation, that desire to, to contribute to the organization and give what they have to offer to others which uh, leads to a sense of fulfillment, you know, and a sense of gratification in what they've contributed to the organization. Well, I was demoralized just hearing some of those words. So uh, <laughs> I can only imagine how other people feel if it's told to them in real life. So that's horrible. Well, it's uh, very common. So yeah, we don't want to do that. It's very common. And it's also something that people don't talk about very much. They, they, they're, they're reluctant to open up to that extent. And so a trusting environment needs to be created so that individuals can feel as though they can express themselves within the organizational context because it's, it's, it's a manifestation of who they are as a human being. And uh, it's being expressed in the, in, in their work. Uh, there are, there are other expressions of it, but this is what you want to create to create that kind of vibrant, uh, exciting experience and creative uh, adventure that a person can be on when they are developing and fully utilizing their potential. And so that's what a values-based organization is, is intended to do, to create the, the germination process for that kind of evolution to take place. Thank you so much. This has been an enjoyable conversation and I've got so many notes to take <laughs> and so much to think about after this. And so I, I, I expect any, anyone else listening is going to run into a similar situation. So thank you for giving us a lot to think about and a lot to do as part of that.
Earlier, you mentioned that you're working on a project. Would you like to talk more about that now? Uh, I just finished the book, uh, Becoming Your your uh, Authentic Self. What are the conditions that are necessary in order to help an individual become authentic? We learn very young what not to do and what not to say. And a lot of times this keeps us from answering the question, well, who am I really? How much of my time am I spending trying to get approval from others or recognition from others to validate me? So it has to, it has to do with sort of where, where does my sense of self-worth come from? Does it come from uh, approval from others? Or is it something that I feel is intrinsic to myself? My my opinion is that intrinsic self-worth, you know, my work, that it's my responsibility to own my own sense of worth. And if I do that, I can then branch out from that. And that gives me more energy to freely give what I have to give to to others whether whether it's my wife my children or in in a work environment then instead of worrying about trying to prove that I have worth I step out in that worth and I contrib I contribute it to others and to projects and whatever else it might be involved in a lot of people in organizations are spending time trying to prove themselves trying to prove that they have worth, trying to prove that they have value as an individual. But if you already own that as part of who you are, then instead of proving yourself, you're using that as a base to extend outward and give it to others. When you think about what actually happens in organizations as, as opposed to what could happen, so the actual and the potential, to me, helping individuals do this and this this could be part of a coaching process and training that uh, occurs in organizations the more you're going to release that person to accept themselves and from that to be able to give more to um, whoever else they're they're uh, working with whatever relationship that, that, they, that they have and you're talking about work organizational relationships to me leaders who encourage this kind of environment where the individual feels affirmed. They feel that they are of worth of value to, to the organization. Those individuals are going to have much more freedom to be innovative and creative and help the organization achieve their objectives than if they feel unworthy, if they feel like they're, they can't really be them, be themselves and they're trying, they're trying to prove that they have some value. That's driven by fear instead of a desire to express who they actually are as an individual. And to me, this is, this helps create a more vibrant, you know, exciting work environment, but also one that's more productive and where the individual has a sense of ownership in what the organization is, is, is producing. Thank you so much for your time today and for the, the valuable insight that you've given us. I really appreciate your time and I've really enjoyed the conversation and the opportunity to, to learn so much from it. So thank you so much for coming on to talk with us today. Well, I very, I very much appreciate you asking me, Gary. I mean, you give me a chance to be, to be who I am with you. And, um, 
So I find it very affirming. And um, I think your research is important. And I hope that uh, you're able to bring forth ideas, concepts, and, and actions that will help leaders create healthier and more productive organizations that they can feel proud of and that the individuals are excited to be part of. So thanks so much for your help on this. You're very welcome. Talking with Dr. Holtman was a treasure trove of information today. In today's discussion, we found several hidden treasures regarding how leaders can maximize employee potential by balancing the organizational and individual values. Dr. Holtman explained that values originate from and help us define what we do in society and as individuals. We are always in relationships and people tend to limit themselves because they think differently than in the traditional linear format. Leaders need to encourage an, an avenue for everyone to take a step back and look at their strengths instead of how much they don't match up to the expected norm. Dr. Holtman explained that we all should ask three significant questions, and we do as we grow. Who am I? What is important to me? And what's my purpose? Our values spring from and drive the answers to those questions. Having a low view of myself will impact my ability to determine why I'm here and how I define my worth. We need to encourage time as leaders for self-reflection to help develop values and focus on the positive aspects. He taught that values form from our socialization or our interaction with others and our individualization or the answers to the question of what do I think? As individuals, we learn to work and we learn to balance our values with societies, realizing that we often have to surrender something in order to exchange for something else in our quest for value fulfillment. In a nutshell, I exchange time and freedom for money by working for my employer. Because of that, because of that sacrifice, leaders need to encourage personal space to rest from the value juggling exercise and allow people to allow people a place and time to recharge. People will become more creative if organizations relax some restrictions and allow personal expression. Conversely, when organizations measure leader success by profit increase, creativity dies very quickly because leaders push for more obedience. Dr. Holtman warned that organizations and leaders must guard against hypocrisy, where stated values don't match the witnessed actions. Leaders can do this by defining the actions that everyone should see when the people exhibit the stated values. Building a reward and promotion system based on demonstrated values promotes creativity and stifles fear. Lastly, Dr. Holtman reminded leaders that the whole person shows up for work, so they need to find out and find out which of each person's values overlap with the organization. Then have a process that teaches and aligns the outlying values. As leaders do these things, they build an organization where everyone contributes. If you found as many treasures as I did on this excursion with Dr. Holtman, please join me on the next time as I continue my hunt for leadership treasures. Thank you.